0: Sabbath everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sabbath everybody. Just smile. People. Somebody just smile at me. Just smile. Just, just cheese. Just grin. Happy to be here in the house of the Lord today. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to stand before you. I want to let you know that uh, your senior pastor, he is alive. <clears throat> alive and well. I received a text message from him early this morning, I think around 5.30 or 6, uh, saying he had just arrived into port, so on the cruise that he was on, I think it was about seven days, but he's alive and well, and I'm grateful that he is, because, you know, I told him that, you know, man, uh, it's going to take too much money to take your name off of everything that we have, you know, here, so you need to come back, you need to be alive, we're grateful that he's alive, he'll be back with us soon, Uh, I'll meet him tomorrow uh, morning, actually, when we go down to Huntsville uh, for the Pastor Evangelism Leadership Council and we all should be back uh, by Wednesday. I want to give a a few shout-outs this morning as well. Is Sister Cherie Leggett here? Cherie Leggett. Uh, Doesn't the sanctuary look beautiful? Give her a round of applause. Thank you so much for what you've done. It looks beautiful. It's wonderful. We're definitely in the Christmas spirit today, as well as to Brother Dwayne Hall. Uh, Dwayne Hall is literally doing everything okay? He is organizing the worship services. He is singing. He's teaching Sabbath school. He's doing everything and anything in between. And can we put our hands together for him? I'm grateful to him for what he is doing uh, as well. To my young people that are serving, I'm just grateful for you. To, uh, I see uh, Stephanie over there on the camera. Thank you so much. You're doing a wonderful job. And for everybody, musicians, all of you who are working so hard on behalf of this church, it's about time we give you your due credit. We are thankful to you. To Willie, to Michelle, to Michael, to Monica, thank you so much for everything that you do for us in this church. Also, I want to give a quick shout-out to uh, Shelly and Sean Hunt. Uh, baby Kenneth is doing well. Am I right about that? She's up there in the balcony. We praise God for that because we have been uh, praying for them. Also today, today is Baptism Sabbath. Praise the Lord. Praise God. And uh, Sister Woods will share the story with you of how one of our candidates came today to be baptized later on in the service, and I'll allow the elders to do that um, as I, so we can expedite service today. Also, uh, as you know, on December 22nd will culminate our 365 days of Christmas. If you have received an envelope in your hand, will you just hold it up? And if actually, you know what? If you haven't received one, hold up your hand. We want to put that in your hand right now. If you need an envelope for 365 days of Christmas ushers, if you could fly around this room as quickly as possible and put that in their hands. Uh, We want to let you know that this offering is separate from your tithes. It's separate from your tithes. This is just a thank offering that we are giving to God. What we want you to do is basically take this envelope home with you, pray about it, ask God what you should give or how much you believe that you should give to God in proportion that he has given you. And I would ask you, whatever answer you receive, go above and beyond that. Give God as much as you possibly can for how good he has been to you this year. So as you take this envelope home, pray about it and begin to fill it as much as you can. And then on December 22nd, we will pick up these envelopes and we will give a huge thank offering to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Give the ushers a few more seconds to pass those things out to everyone. Amen. 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 This morning, we are going to continue our series on the blueprint and on the sanctuary. And you probably can tell by the sound of my voice a little bit. I kind of just went uh, too far uh, this morning. Uh, but I pray that uh, God will keep me in the next few moments. I've actually told myself, if you don't mind, I'm going to try to stick as close to my notes as I possibly can. I'm going to try to stick in the pocket today. Uh, for any of my football fans out there, you'll know that if the quarterback has a good offensive line, as long as he stays in the pocket, all he's got to do is throw the ball. He don't got to worry about anything. But the moment he leaves outside of the pocket and he, he, he leaves his protection, that's when he has to run for his life. All right. And so today I don't want to keep you long. I don't want to preach for two and three hours. And mind you, I can do that. Don't worry about that. I can definitely preach that long. But today I want to stay close to the pocket and make sure that I get done what God uh, wants to be said today. Is that all right with you? Amen. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus. Last week and the week prior. We talked about the altar of incense and how that related to prayer. And now we're moving to another article in the sanctuary, which is the veil, which is the veil, the veil. Exodus chapter 26, and we'll begin at verse 31 and we'll end up at verse 33. Exodus chapter 26 and verse 31 through 33. Here's what the word of God says. Make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim with what woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant Law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Will you consider the subject today, hide and seek? Hide and seek. Let's pray. Father, today, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I will see him one day. Today, O Lord, we pray that you may make yourself known, that you may show up, show out, and show off. And right now, in these next few moments, I ask that you remove me from the scene. As usual, God, there is clearly nothing that I can say that can help anybody in their walk in life. But oh God, I believe if you were to speak today, somebody's life could be changed. Will you help us now? Will you show up, God. Will you not disappoint us? Bless us indeed. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. One brief, one more announcement before we go forward today. I have to recognize one couple. We have a a newly uh, married couple in our audience today. Uh, Will Mr. and Mrs. Richard Tibbs, please stand? Will you please stand? Amen. Amen. God bless you. We're happy to have you. And the counsel I would give to you today is what God has put together, let no man put asunder. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Hide and seek, hide and seek. In the tabernacle, there was a beautiful veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The Bible says that it was blue, it was purple, it was scarlet, it was hung on gold hooks, and a skilled worker had embroidered a beautiful depiction of cherubim angels on it, something that was probably similar to what was already crafted onto the Ark of Covenant already. Now, this veil is significant and very much important, mainly because it symbolized a stop sign for the priest. That as he did his work in the courtyard and finally moved into the sanctuary, when he came to the veil, he realized he could go no further. In fact, he could not only he could only go in on one day out of the year. And that was the day of atonement. Any other time, if he peeked in behind that veil or he tried to sneak in unawares or he tried to look inside to see what was there, immediately the Bible says that he would drop dead. Now, each day during the daily sacrifices, the priest would make a sin offering for the people of Israel, for the Lord. For anybody who had sinned, he would then take the blood. He would catch the blood in a bowl. He would then carry it into the sanctuary Take his fingers and dip it into the bowl and then he would sprinkle the blood in front of the veil on the veil and even before the veil, according to Leviticus chapter four. Now, mind you, day by day, the priest was doing this every single day. He was catching the blood of goats and of bulls and all matter other sacrifices. And then he would begin to sprinkle that blood on the veil every single day. And quite frankly, the sanctuary was only cleansed one day out of the year. So every single day, the priest is now taking the sin offering, which represents sin that has been transferred from the Israelite or from us to the blood, carrying it into the sanctuary over and over again. It is only on one day, the day of atonement, that the sanctuary is cleansed and sin is worked back out of the sanctuary. Are you with me? So for 364 days out of the year, the priest is taking blood into the sanctuary. Can you imagine how much blood was caked up on the veil for 364 consecutive days out of the year? Blood was everywhere. And every time the priest came into the sanctuary, that is what he had to do. The priest would have to come face to face with the fact That because of the veil, he was now separated from God and only once a year could the sanctuary be cleansed. And so even in the sanctuary where the priest is the only one allowed, he can only go but so far. God allows the priest to go in, but he never allows him to go all the way in. And when I thought about this veil and what it represents and what God is doing by covering himself and hiding himself, I really had to ask myself, now, God, what are you doing? Do you really think that a curtain is going to keep your presence out? I mean, if you wanted to, you could go beyond the curtain. What is the point? What is the symbolism behind this? And God told me this. It would seem as though God is hiding himself from us. It seems as though God is hiding himself all year long from the Israelites. Now, it sounds funny when we really talk about it to say that God is hiding himself or he's concealing himself or he's veiling himself from the rest of the world as if God is afraid of us. But don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God is scared of us. But what I am saying is that at the end of the day, we serve a mysterious God. We serve a God That works in wonderful and mysterious ways. And let's just be honest about it today, brothers and sisters. You do not know everything about God. (laughs) You think you do because you read his word and you study and you come to church. But at the end of the day, you really don't know everything about who God is. Bible's a great resource and it's a great tool for finding out the plan of God and how God works from time to time and what his plans is for us and what miracles he's going to do. But at the end of the day, the Bible is not big enough, it's not long enough, it's not eloquent enough to encapture everything that God is. You do not know everything about God. If you knew everything about God, you would not have, God would not have the same mystery or the same majesty or even the same glory that He has with us today. There has to be a part of God that He is reserving solely for Himself. And there are parts of God today that you or I don't know anything about. Can I give you a few examples? Is that all right? The Bible says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Just as his ways are higher than our ways, and then he gets really embarrassing because he then tells us, As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above yours. You don't even think on the same wavelength as God, you don't really know who God is. And even Job, one of his friends, actually gave him some good advice and said, Job, don't you know that God's ways are past finding out? He is God. He is bigger than you. His plan is bigger than yours. You cannot figure God out. The truth of the matter is God will not allow himself to be defined by you. We don't possess adequate adjectives today. We don't have the words or the vocabulary or the skill sets to quantify or even to qualify who God is. No matter what measuring stick we have, God exceeds that. No matter how much we try to fit God into our tight little neat circle of things, God cannot fit. The Bible says the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. That's why I love that song by Chris Tomlin. He says, how great is our God? He's not saying that God is great. He's asking a question over and over again. How great is God? Because at the end of the day, we don't even know how great God is. We don't know what he's capable of. All we know is, is that God is God. And God doesn't want you defining him for yourself. That's why the Bible says that when Moses went up to the mountain and he was talking to God and he said, God, well, I know you're sending me on a mission, but God, what should I tell the people? How should I? What should I say? How do I tell them? What is your name? And God said, just tell them I am. No other name I can give you that can encapsulate everything that I am. Just tell them I am. If they need blessings, I am. If they need healing, I am. If they need finances, I am. I am everything that they need. God doesn't want you to define him and he certainly doesn't want you boxing him in. Because if it was left up to you, get this in your spirit today, if it was left up to you, you would only define God by the measure of faith that you have at the moment. And that's not big enough for God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 3 and verse 20 that God can do exceedingly, abundantly. Above all that we could ever ask, think, or imagine. That means if you can think it, God has already exceeded it. God doesn't want you to define him. Because the way you would define him would be too small for the world. Oh, help me Lord. Uh. God can always do more than what you have faith for. God can always do more than what you actually believe. God is bigger than your faith. Oh. God doesn't want you defining him. He certainly doesn't want you botching him in. Because here's the danger. Because the moment we begin to think that we've got God figured out is the moment we begin to head down a very slippery slope. And at that moment, that's when we try to make God like us. God ain't like you, brothers and sisters. Amen. God's not like us. He is God all by himself, separate and distinct, and it does not need us at all. God is God. But oftentimes we try to make God like us. Can I help you today? Please. Can I help you? Uh, God, you may not believe this. God is not black. Amen. I know we see texts of scripture where it seems like God's elements of his character and personality traits would seem to dictate that he is a brother and he got soul. But God is not black. Amen. You can't fit God into your culture. God don't only like fried chicken, collard greens and gams and all that stuff. In fact, his word tells us that his meat and his drink is to do the will of God that sent him. God's different from us. God ain't black and he certainly, get this, God is not Adventist. Now y'all are going to really get mad with me. God is not Adventist. Now, technically, if you really want to break this down, certainly God is Adventist because I believe that God believes in the second coming of Christ. But at the end of the day, God is not going to box himself in into one denomination. He is not the God only of Adventists. Christ died not only for us, Christ died for the world. Uh... I had to say this in the earlier service as well. People always ask me all the time, you know, if, if Christ was on earth today, well, what church would he join? He would not join any church. Christ would be walking and allow people to follow him. He would start his own ministry. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Y'all want him to be Adventist, don't lie. Uh-huh. You really got to break this thing down, to be honest with you. Christ was, God, God, Christ was not black, but he was Palestinian. And if we really had to choose a denomination or a religion, Christ was a Jew. But God, in the big sense, does not fit into any denomination or any religion. The box is too small for him. He is God. Okay, okay, okay. Even when we bring God down to our level. Sometimes we, we bring God down to our level so much. That we begin to believe that the things that we value have to be the same things that God values, and that's not true. And oftentimes we end up saying things that God never said. Well, Pastor, you know the Bible says that cleanliness is next to godliness. Really? That's not in the word. Oh, some of y'all thought it. Yeah, yeah. It's not in the word. Holiness is next to godliness righteousness is next to godliness Christ's merits are close to godliness oh but get this one Uh, 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 God don't like ugly (laughs) no you don't like ugly (laughs) God never said that and frankly I believe today that God does not create anything that is ugly anyway it may not be attractive to you but God don't make ugly Okay, all right, all right, all right. How about this? Sometimes we make God our own personal attack dog. Somebody get on our nerves, or they bother us, or they step on our toes, or they sit in our seat. We say we're going to pray on them. Like we're going to sick God, take the leash off of him, and let him go bite them in their behinds. God is not under our control. He is God. He is separate and distinct from us. And don't ever get it confused where you try to bring God down to your level or fit him into your box, into your culture, into your religion. He is God all by himself. Thank you, Lord. God does not want you defining him. It's above you, it's beyond you. God, in some sense, must preserve the mystery about himself so that we don't get too comfortable with him. Sometimes God has to hide himself from us. Amen. Because if he's always with us all the time and we can always see him, we will take him for granted. So yes, I believe today God has in some sense hidden himself from us. Can I give you a few examples? First of all, God is invisible. And don't lie today and tell me that you can see God. Amen. The Bible says no man has seen God at any time. You ain't never seen God. You have seen elements of what God does in nature. You can see God as he transforms lives and he's fixing people and he's blessing and he's chiseling off the bad parts of us. You can see God as he is working in our lives, but you ain't never seen God. Okay, okay. God is invisible. And the truth of the matter is, once we see something and we own it and we have it, it's easy to, to, once we possess something, to now take that thing for granted. Once we conquer something, it's now easy for us to say, well, I got that done so we can move on to the next thing. Can I give you an example? Listen, listen, listen. I was in Disney World. I was very young, young little boy, with my mother and I think my aunt and a few of my cousins. And I was walking with my mother in Disney World, just happy-go-lucky, little Johnny, just happy. And uh, My mom was next to me. She was in my sight. She was there the whole time, and I knew she was there, but then I began to just look around and, and, and see everything and see all the attractions and Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse, and I began to just get awestruck by everything that was going on, and then out of the blue, I looked around, and I did not see my mother. Now, I admitted this, that was the first and only time that I cried. Just frantic and scared. Where's mama? You can imagine a young little boy being afraid that his mother is gone in this huge amusement park. I was literally scared for my life, crying tears, shoulders moving and everything like that. Everything. (laughs) Scared. And I went everywhere frantically and desperately searching for my mother. And here's the thing I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, if God was visible all the time, like white hair here, I could always see him. He was always in front of me. Then I immediately take you for granted. God sometimes has to hide himself from us, and I'm thankful today that God is somewhat invisible, so now I have to go out and search for him with all my heart. The Bible encourages us to do that. In Acts 17, verse 27, the Bible says that God has now set up the habitation of people so that happily they may go out and search for him and find him. Does not the Bible say, draw nigh unto me, and I will draw nigh unto you? And look at what Jeremiah 29, 13 says. You will seek me and find me only when you seek me with your whole heart. And so I kind of believe today, and excuse me if I have to say this, but I kind of believe that almost God is playing games with us. He's kind of playing hide and seek. Because here's what God does. Like any good father, uh, a father will walk in front of his little baby boy and encourage him to follow him. And then he will walk a little bit faster so that the boy has to run to, you know, catch up with him. All right. And I feel that God does the same thing. God shows up in our lives. Boom. Here I am. But then, immediately before we get too comfortable, God takes off running and says, "Chase me! Come on! Come on! Come on! Come! Yeah. Come, come! Come! Come on! Come on! Come on! Come, on come, come! Come! Come!" Constantly wanting us to run and chase after Him, because if He just stands there in our lives, we are gonna take Him for granted. We ain't never gonna get it together. So God runs as fast as He can, and He says, "Chase me now! Find me!" Seek for me with all of your heart. Pray diligently. Read your Bible. Study to show yourself approved. Avail yourself to me, and I will show you myself. Well, God not only hides his visible person, he also hides when from us. God hides when. The Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour of Christ's return except the Father in heaven. God does not want you to know when. Amen. If God gives you a date and tells you when he's coming, you're going to sin up until the very minute before. And y'all know I'm telling the truth today because I would do it myself. If you knew the date and the time of Christ's coming, you would sin, you would try it before you buy it, you would explore, you would take advantage of every sin and every vice that you ever wanted to do with our sinful hearts as much as we possibly could until the very moment of Christ's coming. And because God knows that, he has hidden when from us. doesn't want you to know when because every day he wants you to be so desperate for him to say to yourself, Christ could come at any moment i got to have my life together. Christ could come tonight and where would my soul lie? Christ could come today. All the prophecies of the scriptures would be fulfilled. I want to go with God when he comes. So God does not tell us when. He hides that part of himself and keeps it to himself. God also does not tell us why. Hmm. Because God is sovereign. Don't want you to have all the instructions right now. You don't need to know it. You don't need to have the manual open in front of you. All you need to know is, is that God loves you enough that whatever he asks you to do, it's for your good. God don't want you to know why. That's irrelevant to the situation at hand. God is sovereign. Doesn't matter why he asks. Well, I also believe that God is, and I had to take my time with this in the earlier service today because it's going to fly over your head, but I need you to internalize this thing today. It's going to be simple, but get this. Tune in. Our God is holy. Our God is holy. Y'all not even getting this. <laughs> no, no. Our God is holy. He is separate and distinct from all of creation. Our God is holy, which means that he is not like us. And we ought not take God lightly. We ought not take God for a fool or play games with God when God has already told us what he wants us to do. Oh, okay, okay. The holiness of God is so powerful and so demanding, brothers and sisters, for you to come into God's presence as you are right now would be for you to commit suicide. Because unholiness cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Darkness cannot dwell in the same space as light, our God is holy. Don't you ever forget that in your Christian lives, uh, Akio? We were studying the other day, man, about the second coming of Christ. And the verse we looked at said that on that day when Christ comes back, those who have not desired to follow the Lord, those who have taken Him lightly in their lives, those who have decided to do their own thing, they will cry out to the rocks. And say fall on us hide us from the one who is coming in great majesty and glory we do not want to see him hide us from him so I believe today that because God is so holy God hides himself behind a symbolic veil and notice that every time the priest comes near the Holy of Holies He must bring blood or that which represents death with him because it is the only way that he can ever get close to God. And I believe that our God is twofold. With one hand, God bids us come. Come into me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, ye who are thirsty and drink from the waters, free of charge. You don't have to pay anything. Come, ye blessed of my Father. Inherit now the place prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But I believe with the other hand, God holds up in caution and says, Do not come near me unless you are willing to die. With one hand, God asks us, come. But with the other, he cautions us that should you come, you must die to yourself. You can't come in God's presence the way you are. I don't care how much tithe you pay. I don't care how many times you come to church. I don't care how much you know from the scripture. Unless you have Christ covering you, you cannot come into God's presence. We serve a very holy God. Remember Uzzah, don't you? The Bible says that they were carrying the ark someplace and it began to fall off. And Uzzah touched that thing and immediately he dropped dead. Some people get mad with God for that God. God is holy. That's right. And he told him, Do not touch it. Remember when Moses asked to see God. Moses said, God, I'm tired of just talking to you like everybody else does. God, I want to see you for who you are. God said, Moses, I cannot let you see me. Because if you see me, you will die. I'll let you see my hinder parts. And even for that small portion of time that God spent with Moses, the Bible says that his face shone so brightly they had to put a veil over him because the people could not look at him. Oh. Which really is to say today, and I'll give you this as a throwaway the more time you spend with God, the more people ought to know that you've been with God. You're, <laughs> your Christianity ought to be so tangible and palpable that you almost got to hide that thing from time to time because you'll just get all uncouth in any situation. You'll start blessing people and praying for them and shouting praises to God and singing hallelujah. And I believe today that many of us Christians, we even afraid to bow our heads in the restaurant and thank God for the meal. Ah. Ah. Okay, okay. So I feel as though God does hide himself. And and, and now from from our perspective, God is hiding, and we are seeking him. But truth be told, get this, from God's perspective, we are hiding, and he is seeking us. Oh, man. I believe today that, I got to say this, God hides things from us that is not in our best interest to retain. Yeah. God blocked it. (laughs) some things you prayed for you ought to praise Jehovah that he did not give to you some things that you thought you wanted and you desired with your whole heart you better be thanking the God of heaven that he didn't allow you to get your hands on it you would not be here today you ought to be thankful well I believe that God is also seeking us as we hide from him, and God hides from us so that we will seek him. And so we are kind of trapped in this game of hide and seek with God each and every day. Now, I've really just come to this conclusion. I've come to the conclusion, brothers and sisters, that God is doing everything in his power to save me. I'm believing more and more each day. That God is not leaving this thing up to chance. I believe that God is furiously working so that I can be saved. I believe God is doing everything in his power to make sure that I'm with him one day. And I believe that it all stems from the great love story that began in the book of Genesis. And many of us have forgotten this love story, and it it, it, it behooves us today to go back to it so I can make this point, and then I'll get out of your way. But how many of you have seen that movie, Taken? Good movie, man. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Action flick, all that stuff. Story goes at... This guy who's an ex-CIA operative or ex-FBI agent who's been trained in all the martial arts and knows how to use pretty much any weapon imaginable on earth and type of guy you just don't want to mess with at any given point in your life. Uh, The story goes that that his daughter wanted to go overseas and and travel just a little bit. And he told his daughter, if you go, you got to keep these rules and this criteria and you got to do this. Of course, his daughter did not listen. She ends up getting kidnapped. But the main point of the story is that this man traverses land and sea and almost insurmountable obstacles in order to save his daughter. The truth is, he would not stop at anything to make sure that he had her again. But when I watched that movie, I realized that that story even pales in comparison to how God loves us and how he seeks for us. Because now we've got to use a different measuring stick when we talk about God. We can't use the same measuring stick that we use for the movie Taken. When we talk about God, now we have to shift our minds to think about a person, a God, who stepped out of eternity and into time. Hmm, Now, now, Now we have to talk about a God who left heavenly courts filled with countless numbers of angels and golden streets and perfect peace to come and live with us on the dusty roads of earth to feel hunger and to feel tired and to be thirsty and to get sick and deal with temptation. Now now we have to think about a God who cannot die but somehow chooses to die in order to save us. It does not make any sense. In fact... I believe today that the greatest manhunt in history began at creation, and it has not stopped yet. Turn with me to Genesis. Uh, Make this plain, and I'm going to sit down. Genesis chapter 3. Just put your finger there. Genesis chapter 3. We'll come to verse 6 in a moment feel as though when God first began creation, he spoke everything into existence and everything, every day, he, he, he called it good. But out of all that God created, he realized that something was missing. Our God of love wanted somebody who had the capability to love him back. So God, with the, with the, with the uh, attitude of a perfectionist and the creativity Of an artist, the plans of an architect, and the calculation of an engineer. God fashioned mankind, thank you, Lord, out of the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and man became a living soul. And then God said, It's very, very good. Created Adam, but now Adam is there. And he's thinking to himself, something is missing. He sees the giraffes frolicking and playing with each other in love. Sees the hippopotamus with his mate. And he's wondering to himself, "What, what am I missing? And the Bible says that it causes him to go to sleep. Takes a rib from under him and creates Eve. And when Eve is presented to him, thank you, Lord, he says to himself, this is now bone of my bone. And flesh of my flesh. And God made sure that this happy couple lived in perfect harmony. They lived in perfect peace. The environment was great. Ellen White even says that there were no thorns on the roses. There were no such thing as jagged rocks on the mountains. In fact, she says that the mountains were smoothed over in Eden. There was no pollution during that time. Animals weren't acting a fool. The lamb could lay down next to the lion without fear that he was going to get eaten. Everything was perfect. There were no rainy days. There were no foggy days. There were no dark days. Everything in Eden was perfect, and God had provided for their every need. God created them in his own image, and he loved them like they were his own. Now, the only thing we have to compare that to today, if we were to try to look for that love in the world, we have to compare that love to uh, the love of a mother to a newborn baby. That baby is small. When it's newborn, it's almost like it's a stranger. You barely know it. It's completely dependent on you. It can't do anything for itself. But a mother loves that little itty-bitty stranger more than anything in the world as my mother used to say, that mother will do anything for her, even bend over backwards for that baby to make sure that it is provided for. But here is the thing. The mother does not love the baby because the baby is great. The mother just loves the baby because it is hers. God does not love us because we are great, because truth be told, we're not that great. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're not perfect. We're not good in any way. The stench of our sin arises to God's nostrils without the presence of Christ to mingle them with. God does not love us because we're great. God loves us because he himself owns us. And he created us for his glory. And so, oh, help me, Lord. I got to get through this thing today. God loved Adam and Eve. He loved them so much he would not force them to do anything, but he gave them free will to choose for themselves. God gave them only one rule. Listen, do not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Everything around you is good. You can have everything else in the garden. Just leave this one insignificant tree alone. Do not eat this fruit. Don't go near it. Don't touch it. But then we read that Eve begins to wander dangerously close to the tree. The serpent whispers sweet nothings in her ears, telling her that what God has said is actually not true. And when God said, you shall die, this brother simply negates that and says, you will not surely die. And the funny thing is, I don't believe Satan has changed his tactics today. He's still doing the same thing that he's been doing in the beginning. He's now luring us to different trees of temptation and sin that threaten to separate us from God. That's why the Bible says that we ought to flee temptation. Now, i, I got to do this again, y'all. This is not fleeing. <laughs> the Bible says we are to flee temptation. We are to run for our lives. When we see anything that may threaten to take us away from God, we run literally for our lives. Oh, y'all not with me today. We should have such a close connection with God. We should accept God at his word so much that whatever God loves, we love. And whatever God hates, we hate. If God don't like it? I don't like it either. If it don't taste good to God? Well, sure enough, don't taste good to me. God don't like the smell of it. I don't like to be within 10 feet of it. Uh, man. But like Eve, I feel like we ignore the warnings and we get even closer to things and we say, hmm, I wonder. I wonder. Yeah. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Look at it. The Bible says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. And she gave also some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate out of it. Now here is what you need to understand today and don't think I'm trying to be cute or clever with my language today. I need you to get this. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, there was a literal rip in the fabric of eternity. When they decided to eat of the fruit, they were literally and basically telling God, God, I do not want you in my life. God, I don't want what you say. God, I do not want you to rule over me. God, we want to do our own thing. And then look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called out to them and said, Where are you? Immediately after they eat the fruit, they think that the best thing for them to do is to run away from God. And let me explain to you how stupid and maybe even ignorant it was for them to do that. Because at the end of the day, if God had ordained it so, God would have told the trees to speak up. And the trees would have told God, oh, they're right here. Come and get them. The trees themselves would have snitched on Adam and Eve. But they thought the best thing for them to do was to hide in God's creation. And you know full well today, without me saying it, you can never hide from God. The Bible says his eyes run to and fro across the earth. Uh, but what I find interesting about this story is that as soon as Adam and Eve eat from the tree, get this, get this. Literally, as soon as they eat from the tree, God is in the garden. Hmm. As soon as they take a bite, God is there. He does not wait one minute. He does not wait one second. He does not twiddle his thumbs in heaven. Immediately, as they eat of the fruit, God is in the garden saying, Where are you? Where are you? you? What are you doing? What have you done? Where are you? What, what, are you, what are you doing? And what I discovered today and what you should know also is that God never asks questions for information, only for revelation. God don't need no information. Ain't nothing you can tell him that he already know. In fact, the Bible says we're naked before the Lord anyway. And even when we come with our meager, simple prayer lives and we try to hide things from God, God already knows. So you may as well just tell him. The Bible says God is there in the garden, and he asked them, where are you? Not because he needs to know, but to wake them up so that they realize what they are doing. The question was for them. It was a rhetorical question that really didn't need to be answered by God. It was a question they needed really to answer for themselves. If It was as if God was holding up a mirror to them and asking them the question, dude, what in the world are you doing? I created you in paradise, and almost if I had to take this thing to Ebonics today, it's almost like saying, "Dude, really, Adam? Really? You just gonna play me like that? I made mad good stuff for you—paradise, peace, blessings. You were in need of nothing, and you just gonna, you're gonna run and, and, and hide from me like that? Where?" Are you? And so this great God, out of his great love for us, had to banish them from the garden so that they could see the consequences and the choices of their action. But here's something I want to show you in Genesis three twenty four. That's going to bring everything full circle. And I'm going to close this Bible and I'm going to sit down today. Here we go. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. Oh, oh help us, Lord. Hide and seek. Hmm. Verse 24. The Bible says, After... He, God, drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim. What? What did I say? And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. So, God put an angel in front of the gate of Eden because if He allowed mankind to go and eat from the tree of life, we would be dwelling in sin eternally. Now, I'll go back to Exodus. Let me make this point. Exodus 26, verse 31. Look at what God says Make a curtain of blue and of purple and of scarlet yarn. And finely twisted linen with cherubim, with what? Woven into it by a skilled worker. So catch the scene. As the priest is doing his daily ministry, he's going in and out of the sanctuary every single day. He's killing bulls and goats and lambs and every every other conceivable creature and catching the blood and sticking his hands into it and putting it on the veil. He now has to look at the veil and the Bible says that on that veil is the picture of a cherubim. And when he sees that cherubim, it reminds him. That once Adam and Eve caused us to be separated from God. It reminds him that God is holy. And we cannot come into his presence the way we are now. It reminds him that God had to banish us from himself. Because in our sinful lives, we can have nothing to do with God. Uh, And though through the years after Adam and Eve's exile from the garden, I believe that God is just not sitting in heaven waiting for everybody to return to him. I believe even in our own lives today as we are hiding from God and we're trying to do our own thing and we're trying to live our own lives because we think we know best, I believe God is willing to play this game with us. I believe God is willing, even though we hide from him, he is willing to go out and seek for us. The Bible says he stands at the door and he knocks. The Bible says he will stop at nothing to save us. I believe all throughout history and throughout the ages, God is literally running through the pages of Scripture trying to find and save his people. Okay, okay. So when the actual moment came, when Adam and Eve sinned, Christ went to the Father and said, Daddy, I will go down and die. But the thing that astonishes me and makes me happy today as well, that the Bible says that that, 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 that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Which means that before we ever sinned, the plan was already set in motion. Christ has already said, Father, if they sin, if they mess up, if they hide from me. If they turn their backs on me, I will go and I will die for them. So when the moment came, it was already set in motion. All Christ had to do was wait for the appropriate time and the fullness of time to come down and die for us. And so throughout the ages, in between that time, God has been working through Abraham and and Moses and David and Solomon and Elijah all throughout the pages of Scripture and all throughout the history. This is the story of God literally running after us, doing everything that he can to bring us back to himself. And then the Bible says in the fullness of time. According to God's calendar, according to his timetable, Christ came down and incarnated himself in sinful flesh. And I I love today how Ellen White puts it. She says that Christ clothed his divinity in humanity. He literally had to cover himself with the flesh of sinful beings. A God who does not slumber nor sleep now has to learn how to sleep. What? A God that does not need to eat or drink to survive now has to rely on it to exist. A God who does not, who's not tempted by anything now succumbs himself, under, uh, puts himself under the pressure of temptation. How is that possible? But the Bible says Christ did it. And in the fullness of time, he came and offered up himself for us. On the cross and I got something to put on you today and I pray to God it gets deep down in your spirit because oftentimes when we talk about the cross and I I hate it because it becomes so cliche for us now wearing crosses around our necks and tattooing crosses everywhere and we don't even really understand what it means don't have no belief in it doesn't have the same power it once has for us but little do you know how much it took God to die on the cross can I tell you today I read a book called The Case for Christ, and in the 11th chapter of that book, this brother Lee Strobel, he goes and he he talks to a medical doctor. And he says, Doctor, I want you to tell me how Jesus would have felt or what he would have went through on the cross. The doctor responds in this manner. He says, First, Christ would have suffered from hypovolemic shock. Caused by losing large amounts of blood at one time. And doing this thing, the heart races to pump blood, but the blood is not there to pump. And so the blood pressure drops, the kidneys begin to fail, the person becomes very thirsty and craves fluids, which is why Christ staggered all the way to Calvary that day on the Via Dolorosa because he had been whipped all night before. Then he says, the Romans would have used spikes, not nails. That's too cute. And the spikes would have been five to seven inches long and tapered with a sharp point. And they would have not put those spikes in Christ's hands because the weight of his body would have caused them to come off the cross. It literally would have ripped his flesh. So the Romans were smarter than that. They would take the spikes and put it in his wrist which would crust his median nerve, causing excruciating pain for him. And then the pain was so great for anybody being crucified that they did not even have a word to describe it, and so they had to invent a new word. That's where we get the word excruciating from. It literally means out of the cross. Okay. When they place the cross in the ground, As Jesus was hanging there, with spikes in his feet, lashes on his back, a crown of thorns on his head, and spikes in his wrists, as the cross would have settled to its base, it would have caused a jostling movement in his body, causing him even more pain. He says his arms would have been stretched probably six inches in length. And both of his shoulders would have been dislocated. Thank you, Lord. He says he would have suffered from respiratory acidosis. Because he would have had to find a way to push up, to breathe, to inhale, to, and to exhale. This would have caused carbon dioxide in the blood to dissolve as carbonic acid, which would have eventually led him to have an erratic and unstable heartbeat. Christ was suffering on the cross. I don't ever want you to get an idea that this was just some cute thing. In fact, the Bible says Christ prayed that he would not have to go through it. He did not want to do it. He knew it was going to be painful. And the Ellen White even tells us that as Christ hung on the cross that day, a small company of angels was marshaled to the sea. And they were watching the scene, looking at God die. And they could not understand why God would do this. Ellen White even goes so far as to say that the, the, the older angels had to literally restrain the younger ones because they were ready to come down and destroy every last human being on earth. The truth of the matter is it would not have taken very many of them. In the Bible, it says that one angel one time killed 185,000 men. They could not understand how the king of kings would condescend so low that he would allow his own creation to nail him to the cross. <laughs> story even goes that Christ was so adamant about this thing. You remember the thief on the cross, don't you? Christ stopped dying just to save him. And if that don't beat all, as he's hanging there, he now prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Don't hold it to them, God. They don't even know what they're doing. as Christ is hanging there on the cross, bleeding copious amounts of blood, and as he's trying to breathe and suffocating while his own creation that he loves, mind you, are killing him softly, Christ says, I cannot leave the cross. If he had thought about it long enough, brothers and sisters, hear me now. If he had just entertained a thought for a moment that he should be free, angels would have been unleashed from heaven to destroy the world and set him free. Christ at any moment could have risen off off that cross and could have done whatever he wanted to do. But if he did it, thank you, Lord. He knew that we could not be saved. He knew that this cup could not pass from him. He knew there was no other way for us to be saved. And my Savior, Jesus Christ, and I will not be ashamed of him today, died on the cross. Now that's the cross. (laughs) It's not what we think today just happened in a moment, in a twinkling of No, 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 no. Christ suffered for you and for me. Endured the agony. (laughs) He eventually died of cardiac arrest, which is to say that he died literally of a broken heart. But I'm thankful today. I don't know about you. God is not dead. And God lives, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. I'm thankful today, oh, thank you, Lord, that God is pleading my case. I'm thankful today that God is not upstairs twiddling his thumbs, but he's doing everything in his power to save me. And when I finally get to heaven by the good graces of my God, God will show me on a panorama screen how much he has done to save me. He will show me that time he spoke to me, and I did not listen, but somehow, way, he redirected my course. He will show me how he dispatched angels to save me from myself. God will show me that beyond the shadow of a doubt, John, I could not have done anything more for you. And that's why I say today, if anybody's lost, it will be decision. It will not be deception. God has done everything. And the Bible tells us today that when Christ died, you got to go to the text yourself. I don't have time to go there. Mark 15, 38. That when Christ died, this veil, this covering that hides us from our God and keeps us away from his glory, And removes us from his presence. And keeps us away from his joy and his love. The Bible says it was now ripped from top to bottom. Which is to say that no human hand has done that. It was God. God is still working on our behalf. And although he hides himself, he only hides himself so that we will seek after him. And I thank God today that when we hide ourselves from Him, God will seek after us. I got to end and one last story for you today. Uh, it's an urban legend told of a, a woman who was driving back home late one night from a party that she had attended. It's foggy, dark outside, she could barely see the road. But she kept on driving, but she began to get tired. So she pulled off to an exit, went inside the gas station, and decided to get a cup of coffee. Went inside, put the coffee in the cup, and then she came up to the cashier, and immediately she noticed that, that, that something was wrong with him he just looked disheveled and even as he spoke to tell her how much it would be he began to stutter and and stammer over his words but she reached and got her wallet and she was about to pay him the money that was due for the cup of coffee and as she stretched out her hand this cashier latched onto it and grabbed it and, of course, this woman being very much afraid for her life, being a woman alone at night, she was very, very much afraid, and she began to jerk her hand away. But the guy wouldn't let go at that moment, and she said, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? And the man began to stummer and stammer, you, 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 you can't leave. Of course the lady's afraid for her life, wondering, what, what are you talking about? I can't leave. Are you serious? Are you, 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 you can't leave. The lady said, I'm getting out of here. She pulled her hand away from his ran into her car and began to speed off as she got back on the highway. But in her rearview mirror, she could see this cashier leaping over the counter, bursting through the doors, and going and getting into his truck that was parked right next door to the gas station. And immediately, he began to follow her. So of course, this woman is afraid for her very life. She's scared now and wondering what in the world is going on. She begins to swerve all over the road and she even begins to increase her speed and and speed up to try to get away from him. But the guy keeps speeding up and up almost till he's right on her bumper. And then he begins to flash his lights in her window and flash and flash and flash. And this woman is afraid for her life and she has no idea what to do. Finally, as she's driving, she sees a small light off to the side and she gets off an exit and she goes to another convenience store and immediately she jumps out of her truck runs into the store and begins to scream at the top of her lungs somebody help me call the police somebody he's chasing after me I don't know what he wants he's trying to kill me help me help me help just as she's screaming a cashier pulls up next to the gas station, screeches to the halt, jams the thing into part, bursts through the doors and comes inside and she begins to scream even more. Now, that's him, that's him. Somebody, please call the police. Help me, help me, help me. And the brother begins to stummer instead of ma'am, 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 ma'am. Ma. But he can't quite get the words out. Ma'am, 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 ma'am. He's trying to talk and trying and trying while this woman is talking and screaming at the top of her lungs. And finally, he gets the words out. Ma'am, there's somebody in your back seat. woman says what what are you talking about finally this cashier tells her lady when you came into the gas station and you got your coffee I was watching your car and I saw a man pull up get out of his car and jump into your back seat and huddle down in the back and because I saw it I tried to tell you but you would not listen to me and so I got in my truck And I followed you, thank you Jesus. I followed you as close as I possibly could. And the reason I was flashing my lights is because ever so often I saw when his hand would raise up with a butcher knife in it and I flashed my lights to let you know that somebody was watching you. Mm. And this woman, was literally running from her savior. She had no idea what was in store for her. And she was running full speed ahead. Brothers and sisters today, I don't know about you, but I want God to chase me until the moment I die. Chase me, oh God! Even when I want to hide myself from you. Chase me, oh God. Pursue me, oh God. Even when I do not want to do your will. Find me wherever I am. Run after me. Don't ever stop running, oh God. I believe today as we play this game with God of hide and seek, you ought to be thankful today, brothers and sisters, that God will stop at nothing to find you where you are. Uh, I can't leave today. Uh, heads about, eyes are closed. Heads about, eyes are closed. Somebody today, somebody. Some man, some woman. Some boy, some girl. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're going through today. But you need to try Jesus for the very first time in your life. You need to try him right now. You're tired of hiding. You're tired, you're tired. You're tired of running away from God. You've tried everything in your life. God is searching for you. You need to let him have you right now. You need to come out in the open and let God have you. Some man, some woman, some boy, some girl. Don't look at me, brothers. Just pray for somebody. Don't just pray for somebody. If that's you, just make your way down front. Just make your way down front. Don't do it for anybody else. Don't do it for me. My feelings won't be hurt. Do it for yourself and do it for God. You want to say, God, today I need to try you for the very first time. You've been searching for me and you've been seeking after me and I know that you've been running after me. God, it's time. It's time now. It's time. It's time, God. I want to give myself to you. Somebody's moving right now. Somebody's moving. You need to pray right now. If that's not you, pray for somebody else. Pray for somebody else right now. Pray. Thank you, Lord. Christ went to the cross and he died for you. That's love. Nobody gonna love you like that. Give your life to Christ today. There's somebody. There's somebody. Some man, some woman, some boy, some girl. Don't look around, brothers and sisters. Don't look around. Don't look at anybody else. This is for you. This is for you now. This is for you. Somebody needs to give their life to Christ today. Somebody needs to go down in the watery grave. Somebody needs to say, God, I just want to be yours. Holy, totally, completely. Holy thine, oh Lord. Holy thine. I want to be yours. Somebody needs to move. Ah, Father. Stand to your feet, brothers and stand, stand, stand may help somebody today. Just stand. Just stand. Just stand. Just stand. Just stand. If you heard anything today that resonates with your mind, your heart, or your spirit, just stand and keep praying for somebody. I can't let it go because I believe somebody is coming today. Somebody.